This is an ABC podcast. In 2007, journalist and writer Kate Legg followed her husband into the garage of their family home where he broke the news that he'd been having an affair. Greg and Kate had been together for some 30 years or so. They'd had children together, a life together, and they'd shared a career in the same industry. Kate wrote that she flailed around for a while and then she recovered. And then she got interested in the whole business of adultery, infidelity, having an affair, breaking the monogamous contract, whatever you want to call it. And so in 2019, Kate invited him to join her on a road trip to Broken Hill, New South Wales, to investigate his family history of infidelity, a history where infidelity had recurred over many generations. And this investigation led Kate to look back at her own family history. Kate's written a book about this. It's called Infidelity and Other Affairs. Hi, Kate. Hello, Richard. You're still married to Greg now, even though you're no longer a couple. You've got separate partners now. Mm. How would you describe your relationship these days? Well, he's still pretty much my best friend, I'd have to say. I always ring him when I've got a knotty problem to solve. And we've got grandchildren together and so we've really tried to put our big people's pants on and channel our best selves and we get on very well. We both share an interest in current affairs and both journalists together and we have so much in common but we are married still. Um, We just haven't bothered to to get divorced but we have both have different partners and, um, you know, we get on very well. So it's a genuine friendship yes. now, is it? Yeah. Do you hang out sometimes? Yeah, well, when we, when we have the grandchildren together, we hang out and sometimes we travel together, as we did to Broken Hill. And I think my mother died when I was 23 and I was with Greg for longer than I knew my mother. And, you know, he's my family and the father of the children. And so, you know, there's a lot we have in common. How did he respond when you told him you were going to write a book about? Well, he originally was very encouraging and and the reason why we went to Broken Hill was to do the research so that I might write a fictional treatment of infidelity and the intergenerational story of infidelity in his family. And that's what I was intent on doing and it was only during lockdown um, when I started to get another idea. I wanted to bring an authentic voice to what is a universal problem and I felt the best way to do that was in this this series of essays. When I told him I was going to do this, I can still remember on the front porch of our family home where I said that I was thinking of going down the direction of non-fiction and there was a very, very, very long and awkward pause. I bet there was. (laughs) But I said, let me see how I see what I come up with and let's see if you can wear it. So it was always done on the proviso that it, it wouldn't proceed if there was a big objection or he felt that it would be impossible to do. And as Daniel Krabs said about him, a cheating status anxious man in the media is not a rare thing, but someone who understands his wife's need to write about it sure is. And you feel the same way? And I feel the same way, yes, because, you know, it's been difficult for him to have to, you know, live with this tag. But he understood. He, he's a, a student of history, he's a journalist at heart and he married a woman for whom, you know, everything is copy and so he understood the need to write about it. And he's also said that as I wrote about it, he watched me heal and that that was a really positive thing to come out of it. And I really do feel that as one word in front of another, trying to find an understanding of what we've gone through has really, really helped me. It feels weird asking you about the gory details on this, but it is in your book. Um, How did he put it to you? Did he explain why he was telling you this now when he told you 
He was having an affair well, in 2007? The first time he told me about it, he had to tell me about it because her husband had been sleuthing through their phone accounts and was going to tell me if my husband didn't. And so that was the reason why he called me out to the garage in the, the dun-coloured hue of dusk. And uh, there, surrounded by the paint cans and the detritus of you know hard rubbish, he dumped his own. <laughs> and he didn't... Uh, he it was able to finesse the chronology, so he really diminished the affair and downplayed it. But it still didn't stop me from being bereft and hopping into the car and driving around the neighbourhood wondering where I was going to land with my stinking trouble. It was Sunday night, people were getting ready for school the next day, you know, supervising homework. And uh, I decided after a few laps of the neighbourhood that um, I was going to go back home and just hold on to this thing tight. Our oldest son was about to enter year 12 and I just didn't want to let a bomb go off in the household. And is that why he told you in the garage? Do you think so? Oh, so no one else would hear, So no one else would hear in Mm, in the house. mm, It was mm. to spare your kids the witnessing your your Mm, distress. mm. Did you have any inkling this was coming? I had no inkling whatsoever. You know, I I felt like I was dumb, deaf and blind. I had no idea. And it was with a friend of mine who who I'd made a new friend in Melbourne and I was very close to. We'd gone on, you know, we started off by having dinners together and going on picnics together, often picking our children up from the same sporting events. And we'd even had a holiday together down at the Great Ocean Road about three weeks before I was hit with the bad news. So that was also a very hard thing because I was, I felt sense of betrayal on from both sides and I really felt like nobody had thought or considered me. I think when you're married that long, I think your personalities blend into each other to such an extent you can't even really fully understand how much you blend together. You can't even see it because you're in the middle of it so mm. much. So when you when he said that to you... How did that kind of feel in your in your body, I suppose? Did you have a kind of a visceral reaction? A visceral reaction, yes. It's just complete shock. You have this pounding of heart and the coursing of your blood through your veins. You really, it feels like you've driven through a plate glass window that you didn't really know was there until you're suddenly picking out the shards of glass from your hair. Is it like that or did you also feel sort of untethered from... Totally untethered, totally untethered. And because because it was a shock, it's that shock, it's that visceral reaction of shock first, I think, before the emotions start to flow. And uh, it was it was devastating. But because I had to really soldier on, I uh, and because I had a child going into year 12, I really just had to pull myself together. And we both made a decision that we would try and work things out. And he made all sorts of promises about how he was going to behave in the future. And, you know, it was a tough couple of years, but we struggled forward. And I must say, I resisted his request to go to counselling at first. I thought that actually he needed a bit of a crash course in honesty. And <laughs> why did I need to do anything? That was my initial reaction. And it was only the second uh, episode of the infidelity that I really tried to get a grip on what had happened and understand things from his perspective. Was it just this one affair or had there been others? No, there'd been others and, and that was before before he came back, before we agreed to, to work it out, He, I asked him to come clean so that I wouldn't stumble over any more dead bodies. Did you want to kick him out of the house but thought you better not because you wanted I to keep did it, it okay? I did at first and then he pleaded to come back and, and he was very persuasive and very convincing and, as I said, because, you know, I really wanted to hold the family together. You know, he was, he was, he was a real pillar for me. He was an anchor for me. He'd always been very supportive of me and I have to say that I'd always felt very loved, which was why I got such a shock. You know, he, he was otherwise a very good husband and a good father. 
So you didn't think you'd lost him, or did you think you'd lost him? And you need you wanted. What did I didn't know. I wanted to try. I wanted to really try and, and see if we could find a way forward and um, put it behind us. And because, as I say, we just didn't want too much acrimony and um, explosions at home. We we really did try and uh, and work things out. Of course, it's going to really knock you back in your socks. This kind of revelation. And did you have that sense that you were kind of um, I don't know losing losing it for a while, um, or losing it around other people? Well, I was still at work. I was working at working in a in a newspaper office, you know, covering other people's conflicts and conundrums. And uh, did that help? <laughs> yeah, it Seriously? did. It did absolutely. The distraction and discipline of a job you love. You know, I had to go on. I had to schedule interviews. I had to make phone calls. I had to go in, out on stories. And I used to tell myself in the morning, "You are not the story. You are not the story. You are not the story." Because of course, sometimes you know the temptation is to spill the beans. And it was really great that I had a p- sense of purpose to pull me through. Tell me about the book club meeting you went to with your friends that sort of went a bit wrong. <laughs> well, I went, uh, this is the group of us who we'd reconnected. We'd all been student theatre together 40 years ago. Real old friends. Really then. old right. friends, yeah. And we knew each other's secrets almost, although I hadn't confided or shared in any of them what had happened. And one of my girlfriends had her husband had just left her for a much younger woman, only three years older, older than their daughter. And she'd been out to lunch that day and she asked if I could drive because she was feeling a bit tipsy. And so I thought, no worries. I got into the car. I only had a couple of glasses of wine at the book club where we were discussing Christina Steed's The Man Who Loved Children. Mm. And uh, Of all things. Of all things. <laughs> 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 and off we went and uh, I, you know, took the exit ramp off the freeway full of confidence and ran smack bang into a booze bus. And I didn't know then that, a, that emotional dysregulation can inflate your alcohol reading and I was a bag of bones. I weighed 52 kilograms and, of course, flew confidently into the, into the uh, straw and, uh, unfortunately, I blew 0.08. And uh, I was sitting in the booze bus and my son, who was 19 at the time, rang and said, Mum, where are you? <laughs> So I had to fess up. I was absolutely ashamed. And uh, that night I really felt like I was losing things. I remember going outside and just sobbing at the moon and thinking, well, I wish this downward spiral would stop. Oh, God, you must have felt so wretched in that moment. Oh, shocking, shocking. I felt like everything was falling apart. Yeah, every hold I had on the world had come untethered. You know, things fly apart when the centre doesn't hold, as Yates wrote. So after a while you thought, being a journalist, that you could write about this or investigate it. I wonder if this idea of investigating the phenomenon of infidelity, you thought it might give you some distance on what had happened to you. It did. And I, at the time it first happened, I, I did my first impulse, because a writer's first therapeutic impulse is to write. And I had started to take notes. And I spoke to my then literary agent, Mary Canaan, and she said, no, that's a very bad idea. Don't do it. And so I set it aside and didn't really think about it until the second episode of Infidelity. And... And then I started to think about what had happened in his family and to look back at a seam of infidelity that ran from his grandmother through his father's and mother's marriage and then into ours. And I just, I've always been interested in the idea of nurture and nature and generational traits that are passed almost like a baton or a curse from one to the next. And uh, that was when I decided that I would start looking at it and I'd come across some research in 2017 which showed that um, they'd done three separate studies of uh, infidelity and they found that offspring who'd been exposed to infidelity in their family of origin were significantly more likely to repeat that behaviour. It was a very small study. They recommended further work but I was fascinated by that. So that suggests two things. There might be some 
if it's being repeated generationally, that, that suggests possibly there might be some genetic factor at play or some genetic predisposition or maybe modelling behaviour. Yeah, modelling behaviour. Yeah. That's what they suggested. It leaves a, a, a door ajar in your mind. There's an exit strategy. Yeah. And also if you've watched parents separate and perhaps be happier afterwards, you know, it reinforces the idea that maybe that's the way to go so that rather than fixing up the leaky house and repairing the roof and putting new hinges on the door, you just leave and start a new relationship. Look, I know there can't be a really good answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, mm. anyway Kate. Do we know how common infidelity is in modern marriage in Western societies? No. Look, all the surveys suggest, conservative estimates suggest it happens in 25% of marriages. But, you know, they're relying on surveys by people who are prone to massaging the truth, very often kidding themselves. So there's and a very to step rubbery... And and, and self-identify. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No one. Because it's, it's secrecy is the, you know, humidity crib for, crib for an affair. I mean, that's how it thrives. And it's also the excitement and the frisson of doing something behind someone's back and not telling anybody about it. And that's how they live. Now, it's commonly thought, and it's hard to raise this as an issue because you tend to get clobbered for saying this is a good thing, but it's commonly thought that men are more predisposed towards uh, having multiple relationships with, with women, the ones that are heterosexual in any case, mm. because of some kind of predisposition to spread the, the seed, seed more right. widely. Mm. Where is biology? Where did you find that biology is on this, evolutionary biology? What are they saying? Is there, is there truth to that? Well, I think that we all assume it's, a, it's really a generalisation, it's a stereotype that that's what men are like. I don't think so. I think that there are as many women having affairs as there are men, and more so now than ever before, because women are financially independent. They no longer need, really, a men to have children or to um, start a family. The freedoms and independence that have delivered to women over the last 20 or 30 years have freed them up to behave in a way, you know, as much as men. And they get bored in marriages as well. I think there's less judgment now about having affairs, you know, because of the rules have changed and there's so much more fluidity and uh, in society generally. And if you read um, Sally Rooney's book on conversations with friends, you know, she's very relaxed about it. There's no, not the same level of judgment that there would have been, you know, and that was why, you know, years and years and, well, if you look at Marie Antoinette, who, for example, who apparently had an affair and this new technology has unveiled redacted letters that she'd sent to her Swedish count who really? she was having an affair with, because, you know, in those days she faced penury, death, and if you look at all the women in literature who've had affairs, they all die at the end of the book, you know, as a sort of final moral judgment. Anna Karenina, uh, Madame Bovary, it doesn't end well. I don't want to spend too much this time on this idea that it might be a gendered thing, but do men and women cite different reasons for having an affair, typically? Well, there's a number of reasons that people give for having an affair, and I think they're probably the same on both sides. I mean, the monotony of monogamy, um, drought in the marital bedroom, and, I mean, that's often a difference in libido, and men often have thought to be more driven than women, but I think that that's probably, uh, again, a generalisation. There's narcissism, neuroticism, uh, a quest for the discovery of self, and that's what Esther Perel talks. That often people are looking to be their younger self again. They've been in a marriage, they've been in a relationship for a number of years, they're bored, they want to try something different. Substance abuse, you know, all sorts of impulsiveness, all sorts of reasons for uh, rushing out and uh, relieving yourself in But there doesn't way. seem to be like a... I don't think it's a gender difference right. in that. I think that's very similar. I think but they talk a... about different reasons for the estrangement, I wonder, in the first place, if there is an estrangement. In the marriage? Mm. 
Um, well, and again, there's some surveys which show a slight gender difference in that in that men de- describe sex as giving them emotional intimacy, and of course, women want you know to, to talk much more and have their emotions um, recognised than uh, than men. I mean, I think it was Lionel Murphy who said to Malcolm Turnbull that men are seduced by their eyes and women are seduced by their ears, and I think that's very true. And women mm. are often looking for that sort of emotional support, much more emotional intimacy, while men perhaps a more driven to find physical intimacy. You mentioned the couples therapist, Esther mm. Perel, that mm. sort of famous person. Sarah Konoski interviewed her a, a, a little while back on this program. Oh, she does TEDx talk. She's just a star. She's an extraordinary person. Does she take a, a, a moral view of infidelity or...? No, she's, got, she's often accused of being pro-affair because she's got a very nuanced approach. So she wants to know what it did to one and what it meant and what it meant to the other. So that, you know, she, there's no victim, perpetrator, good and bad. She really tries to, to blow that myth up in order to try and get people to understand what was going wrong in the marriage and see whether or not they can get back together again. And she often talks too about the the fact that affairs can be very good for libido and good for the relationship because it's the eroticised gaze of the third that challenges the domesticated perceptions of each other and so that can, you know, that can flick a switch often in, in a marriage. Then there's Dan Savage, the, the vice columnist uh, in the United States who is... Married and gay. Gay and monogamish. And, and monogamish, monogamish, he says, monogamish. Yeah. What's his view on well, infidelity? I loved his view and he, 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 he understands, you know, he, he says, look, people promise to be true but sometimes they're not. Sometimes they stray. It does happen. And if it does, you shouldn't throw out the whole of the relationship but you should sa- save what you can, what the best of it can be and honesty is really important and I think that is crucial because that was the hardest thing for me was the lack of trust. I mean, distrust is a hard burden to shift and a burdensome guilt to shoulder. I mean, it's a very difficult thing to, to get over and I think that's the, the breakdown of trust often that is, is more damaging to the relationship because you turn into this super sleuth. You know, I went from head in the clouds oblivion to suddenly, you know, going trawling through everything, old diaries, documents, receipts. But, but Kate, in all honesty, would it have really been much better if he'd sat down and said, well, yes. I'm flirting with this woman and I think I'm yeah, going to have an I think affair, I have with, affair her. with her? Yes, I it think really, it would have. Seriously? It would have, it would have really focused my attention on the problem at hand. And you see, I was probably too dismissive when he was trying to raise it as an issue, when he was trying to say that there were faults in our marriage and I, I wasn't addressing them. But I think I always said to him that if you told me that that's what you were thinking of doing, my goodness, you would have got my attention. You quote that famous line of Tolstoy's she begins Anna Karenina with, which is, all happy families are alike, but unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. Why did you want to write about your own family in the light of what you discovered about Greg and, and his family? Well, I've always been fascinated by the darker side of love, I guess, as much as I am about the joy and wonder of love. And also as a, as a, as a journalist, you're fascinated by the grey areas between, you know, fact and fiction. And I... I think that was probably what grabbed my attention in, and wanted, what made me want to write about it. It starts with but your it's mother. But every, every affair is different too. Every affair is different. As Tolstoy said, well, he was talking about happy families and unhappy families. Yes, but, but, but when he begins that story, it's actually about a marriage that, that's been blown up yeah, by the husband's infidelity. Fidelity. Yeah. And I, but I also love his line where he has Count Vronsky talking to the ambassador's wife when she says to him, um, she thinks that marriage is founded on reason are the happiest marriages. And he says, I think marriages founded on reason often crumble to dust because the passion that's so important in a relationship is ignored and often 
often appear later on. And the unalloyed truth of that comment really crawled over my skin because mm. my husband and I had a wonderful relationship. And, you know, the first night we met, we talked all night and married two years later. I was actually in a relationship at the time I met my husband. So the reason why we didn't get to bed, go to bed that night was because I was very faithful and loyal and true. And I wouldn't have countenanced that sort of behaviour. But I think I feel sometimes that I'm dull and decent. <laughs> that the daring of love and lose all and that passion that Count Vronsky talked about is this really important currency in any relationship and it shouldn't be ignored. Yeah, this, but the steadfastness too, which is not a very glamorous no. virtue, but it's a virtue nonetheless, isn't it? It is a virtue. It is a virtue, and I, I'm, you know, very much of that school of thought. You know, it's like you're still here. I'm still here. You know, but being still there is something that's really good over Re- time. Yeah, can, really it important, and it, you know, it depends what sort of values you place on family and holding family together. And as a journalist, I was really aware too that damage begets damage, and I didn't want, you know, I really wanted to hold things together rather than having them blow apart. Just going back to your own, I'll come to Greg's story as well, but but your own childhood was overshadowed by a really volatile mother. How, how was she with you when you were little, Kate? Yes, well, it was a uh, it was a very fraught household. Um, my brother later suspected we made a posthumous diagnosis that perhaps she had borderline personality disorder, which was why I was interested in, in looking at her. And what? what, what well, the symptoms what, of that are yeah. uh, wild mood swings, inappropriate bursts of intense anger, um, feelings of chronic emptiness, um, irrational fears of abandonment and suicidal threats and behaviour. And we would encounter all those regularly in our home. You know, we would hear her when we were coming home. If we heard the, her thumping the iron down on the ironing board mm. or sweeping the front veranda, we knew they were the sort of pers- our personal air raid sirens. And we knew we had to either brace, go into the brace position, um, make ourselves scarce or we'd be careening into her abyss. And was she violent with you? Well, yes, I suppose there was sort of an emotional abuse uh, with me Um, and this was the other thing that really disturbed me about my mother and I only learnt this four years ago. My brother came to me and told me that our uncle, before he died, had uh, said to him that she had thrown me against the wall when I was a child. Now, I don't have any memory of that but it was a very shocking thing to learn and that was when I started to look more closely at her behaviour. So the sort of things that we remember, there's this famous car trip we went on. We'd been visiting friends of ours, farmers in the Western District in near Warrnambool, and we were driving home in the car and um, all of a sudden we heard her fraught sarcasm, which always put us on edge, and then she turned around, got lipstick out of her bag and just drew this face like a clown around her lips and she was sobbing and distraught. And, I mean, none of us remember what she was saying at the time, but it was just that emotional nakedness to seeing her blitzed, which uh, I was too young then to understand the ravens pecking at her. But she had a very difficult life. She was a, um, a brilliant woman. She'd studied modern history at Oxford. She'd married my father, who was a historian. They were obviously drawn together by a love of mutual ideas and learning. And then he, of course, his career took off in, ac- in academia and um, he, was, he was a founding professor of history at Monash University. And mum was sidelined and not only sidelined in an era when there weren't opportunities for women, but she was also sidelined with a very difficult child at home. So I tried to look at her in the context of what I now knew about being a mother and the surrendering of self and how difficult that can be and the, and the, and the um, resentments that you feel. And she was housebound with this child who was um, intellectually disabled at a time when there was very little support for, you know, parents raising children with emotional disturbances. And there's a, a writer who once wrote that motherhood is like 
a heavy winter coat. You have to wear it whatever the season. And I think she just Ooh, found that's a good it. Line. I like that a lot. It's a great yeah. line, and it really mm. because you can't take it off, and you can't just dis- no discard. How much sweating and how uncomfortable you are. <laughs> no, and you can't yeah. take the children back to the desk at the RSPCA to surrender them. I mean, you just got to make do. And she did, but I think she felt utterly unfulfilled. And and being at home, and my father was just he graced the academic temples of reason and reading their letters as I did when I was researching and going back and looking at who she was. You know, Dad would be writing these wonderful... I had been at an international conference and his paper had gone down well and Mum was, you know, her letter was about taking us all down to the beach during a Melbourne heat wave and my younger brother punching children and have, have not being able to take her eyes off him and wondering why nobody ever wanted to come to our house. And I felt for her, I really felt I understood more of the demons that were tearing her apart and leading to this really quite fraught and emotional childhood. So, you know, when we when we moved to Singapore, which we went often went on sabbatical leave with my father, you know, you'd think this would be a joyous occasion for her. But again, she was she was stuck in a sort of colonial house with with um, which was sort of like Somerset Morn with plantation shutters on the window. We had staff, which we never had on an academic salary at home, obviously. And and my younger brother would often unravel in these places. And once she took us in the car and was threatening to kill us all, just my brother and me and her. And she How, old were, you? How old were you at I that time? I would have been 10, 11. And she was just weaving from one side of the road to the other, crying, screaming, I'm just going to get ended all for all of us. And I can't remember why. I remember we got home safely. But it's just one of those things you never forget. And I think one of the things it's important to remember about our lives, because we're hypervigilant now as to how our childhood impacted upon us, that what we remember, we remember the splintered gateposts, we remember the, 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 the shattered bars, we remember the argument, we remember the drunken tirade, we remember the lipstick smeared face, but we don't remember the benign lulls in between. And so that was what I went searching for in trying to understand how she'd made our childhood so miserable, because it wasn't all miserable, of course. And once I started to unravel her, I remember but all the beautiful and lovely things about her. I'd learnt to take the panoramic view of my childhood rather than hold on to these um, less pleasant memories. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. There's a lot, long story in your book about um, a, a streak of mental illness that runs in mm. your family from mm. gen, in, in generation. How do you mm. think this fed into this story of, of infidelity here? Well... During lockdown, when I was starting to write what was then thought to be a fictional book treatment of infidelity, I used the opportunity, as so many people did, and, and Melbourne, of course, had the longest lockdown of any city in the world, to go through my father's filing cabinet of personal papers, which he'd kept and I had ignored for years because other domestic imperatives got in the way. And I went through them and that was where I became interested because a lot of the papers recorded the things that had happened in a number of members of our family. And at that time I had discovered this beautiful poem called The Circus Animal's Desertion by William Butler Yeats where he's writing... My favourite poet, by the way. 
right? <laughs> is yeah. he? Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's beautiful. And he was, was, this is one of the last poems he wrote, and he was looking back. He's no longer as prolific as he once was, so he's lingering, trying to find a sort of lingering truth that lives on beyond the vestiges of youth and fortune and wondering at, at the muse. And, and, I, and this is the last verse, and this is what really grabbed and took a hold of my heart. He said, those masterful images, because complete, grew in pure mind, but out of what began, a mound of refuse or the sweepings of a street, old bottles, old kettles and a broken can, old iron, old bones, old rags, that raving slut who keeps the till. Now that my ladder's gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start, in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. And I felt that really summed up for me where I wanted to go in tracing these seams of darkness, both through my husband's family and then through my own family, because looking for meaning and measurement later in life and wondering about the things that uh, forge destiny, circumstances, temperament and the, 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 the plaiting of the kinship strands. The foul rag and bone shop of the heart mm. is one of his most famous mm. and most powerful lines, mm. isn't it? It's beautiful. It's beautiful because if you think about opportunity shops and, you know, they're full of chip memories and stunted hearts and you never know what you're going to find and it's often things that, are, that are, have been discarded that are, can be the most illuminating and that's what I found going through my father's papers. It wasn't so much the, you know, the records of momentous achievement but it was the, the scraps of paper with, with, with letters from various members of the family that revealed to me, you know, their heart. This intergenerational uh, tendency, is it the word predisposition mm. or uh, towards infidelity, you notice? Let's start with how you met your your husband, Greg. Well, I first glimpsed him at a press conference given by the then Labor leader, Bob Hawke, at the Boulevard Hotel, and he was uh, stood out from the throng of scruffy journalists because he was so immaculately dressed in a eucalypt green suit and a red vest and he had horn-rimmed spectacles and he was also the one who was giving Hawke the hardest time. Now, you see, the, the Boulevard Hotel is where Bob Hawke has famously had many affairs himself. And, I mean, there we were. Mm. We, we both wound up in Canberra together and that's how we, of course, you know, met. And, uh, you know, there were affairs going on under every desk, behind every door in the press gallery and, the, you know, right up in the prime ministerial suite because, of course, the grandest affair in Australia's public stage had been between Bob Hawke and Blanche Dalpichet. But nobody mentioned it. Nobody wrote about those sort of things. Of course, everyone talked about it, but no-one ever, ever, you know, put pen to paper. And really not for a long time you know, in public life, did people start to use this as a test of character? And, I mean, Greg and I were in Washington as foreign correspondents in Washington, D.C., when Gary Hart, who was a Democratic candidate, was take a photograph appeared of him on a boat called Monkey Business with a very pretty young woman sitting on his knee. Donna Rice. Donna Rice. I remember that, yes. <laughs> <What is> that? <laughs> it's funny how that name comes back undone, doesn't it? And that wow. was really the first time that people, you know, his, his, that was the end of his candidacy, of course. That was the end of it completely. But it was nonetheless, that was when the, these stories started to be covered. And, of course, while we were in Washington, Bill Clinton was running for the presidency and we, we were always bemused by these big bucks and women who were stepping out of the, you know, limousines into the glare of, of the television cameras talking about his affairs. I know, it's funny, isn't it? Because you think Roosevelt had affairs, of Truman course. famously did not, Eisenhower had an affair, JFK oh, was JFK, well, yeah. Lyndon Johnson might have even been worse than JFK. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on, on, on but it doesn't list. turn voters off necessarily. No. And they're attracted to that sort of man. I mean, you look at Bob Hawke, he was loved by the public and the public loved Hazel and so they were hurt when he left Hazel for Blanche but that didn't stop his electoral success and similarly with Clinton who was nonetheless able to keep his marriage together and I find that really interesting too that some marriages can survive it because Clinton for Hillary was so important. He was her sounding board, he was her backbone 
and uh, that marriage survived. And I think these are interesting to look at these affairs. I mean, Camilla and Charles, for example. Now, look at that affair. But there are some affairs that will just endure. You say that your wedding to Greg was slightly tricky. Tell me about what made it so tricky. (laughs) Well, look, I was vaguely aware of a story, a family story about his grandmother's affair, but his father had left his mother for a younger woman who he'd had a long-standing affair with and they would be, all the three of them would be there together for... for so Greg's mother was there? Greg's mother. Greg's the young, dad and the, dad, and the, and the younger new, And the younger woman, woman who right. had broken up their marriage, essentially. So did you, you have to look at the seating arrangements Well, it, was, closely, it wasn't that big a wedding, which was the problem, of mm. course, because there were only 50 people. And so she brought her sisters along as Praetorian Guard and... Uh, you know, we managed, and what? But I never thought that this would come home to visit me. At that stage, I thought those were relationships with problems that were nothing to do with me. I was launching a marriage here, and that uh, we, you know, we had all the hope mm. and optimism in the world. Tell me how how Greg's mother had found out that her husband, Colin, Greg's father, was having an affair yes. with this younger woman. Well, she was a little bit like me, Molly, and I think she was too busy doing things to sort of pay much attention. She was also very tolerant. So he would often say he had to stay in town for business dinners and she thought these would be lubricated by drink and so that that was probably a good decision. And then one day she rang his office and she said, um, hello, and they said, uh, "Who uh, can I speak to Colin? They said, who shall I say is speaking? And she said, it's his wife. And they said, oh, Luda, how nice to hear from you. And, of course, Luda was the name of the other woman and she had no idea, Molly. And oh, when no, that must have been... That's a devastating, devastating way. way to find out. But, again, when Colin came home, he completely doused her suspicions and insisted that the person who answered the phone hadn't a clue and they were an idiot and she shouldn't pay any attention to them and she didn't. And so she was blindsided when he came to her one day after she'd returned from a study trip to China. She was one of the first groups of, of uh, Westerners into China at that time and she came home and, and uh, he had already moved out but he didn't and she noticed when she walked into the house because she was part of that generation of women who'd gone back to university when Gough Whitlam you know removed fees and she realised her desk had gone and she thought oh where's the desk gone he said I had to take it back to the office and then she looked around because he was so impeccable with the fastidious in the way everything was kept in the house she noticed that everything had been tidied up and of course he'd removed things to go and he bought her in a cup of tea and a piece of toast and said I've moved out while you were away and she was gobsmacked she said is there anyone else and he denied it denied everything um, and said no, but of course. What, even then? Even then, even then. And she didn't tweak oh. to it until sometime later. She's put everything together out of the line of sight and realised what had happened. And I'm, she I'm, does... I'm just experiencing the... I, mean, I, feel, I'm just, I don't know what I'm feeling at the moment, but I just feel sort of like, I don't know, this... Uh, Post-traumatic stress yeah, syndrome. Yeah, well, this kind of this powerful sense of shame he must have had or not had. No, I don't know. well, not have. And he wrote her this long letter explaining why he was going and to the children as well. And absolutely, he used uses Luda's full name, you know, I'm going, I'm going to Sydney with my business acquaintance and, and we, we, you know, he also feigned impotency in the bedroom. And so he had no shame. Uh, so but was... it was the lies that um, right. were so shameful, really. So, so that was your husband's father. Father. Mm. But then looking further back still, well, this his is interesting... father had become aware that his his mother had been having an affair. Tell me how that unfolded, please, Kate. Well, that's a difficult one because, of course, we only got Colin's word for what happened. But I have been able to confirm elements of the story. So he was 14 when his family, his parents had... This uh, is Colin, who's Greg's dad, your husband's father. Yes, my okay? husband's father. When he was 14. When he was 14, he accused his mother in front of his father of having an affair with the lodger who they'd taken in to give them some extra money. 
So I don't know. It's whether... always the bloody lodger, isn't it? <laughs> I know, isn't it? The, the unnamed lodger. I don't know mm. whether he caught them in bed or whether he saw them too often together or whether he overheard gossip that they were dancing a hair's breadth apart. I'm not sure how he found out. But his father was furious and his father was a very quiet, placid man and he belted him with a belt. Colin. Col no, Colin's father belted him for voicing this um, suspicion that the mother was having an affair with the lodger. So, so, so Colin went, he went to his father to say, I think... Yes, I mum's think having, mum an having an affair, mum's having an affair. And he beat, beat, beat Colin the for, son ta for saying that. For saying that. And because the wife, deni his mother denied it. And they booted him out of home. So at 14, he left Broken Hill. He didn't come back for decades. He left at 14? He left at 14. And again, it's that spirit, that's that real spunk and spirit. Without even look over his shoulder, I think he just thought he was going to move on and do better things. He'd always, he used to go and sit on Round Hill and mooch about city lights and think about getting out. I think he was, and he was the only one of his seven siblings who left Broken Hill and, um, and made a life for himself in Melbourne and then later in Sydney. But so Greg Zagcolin left the house yeah, at 14. In, and he was outraged about the affair. That's the other thing that's interesting. He was outraged about his mother doing this to the family and doing it to the father. But it's a history of hearsay. So because there's no records, all I was able to rely on was the... Uh, the story you got, right. Yeah, it was, sto it was a story I got and also interviewing... Colin's um, sister-in-law, who married um, Colin's brother. This is where we need the whiteboard. Yeah, and yeah. she remembered going to the house and she remembered the story and she knew that that's what the story was. So Colin, your father-in-law, left home at 14 mm. after his father beat him up for saying mum's having an, an affair. affair. What happened after he left? Did Colin's parents stay together? They stayed that? together, growing closer apart, that wonderful line from A.D. Hope. Closer and apart. At, at closer apart. And, you know, they had grandchildren and it was never mentioned, you know, social protocol just fenced off rugged emotional terrain and no-one revisited it, no-one told it. And, and what about the border? What happened to him? He, well, he went to the war and was killed. And so, so, oh. so he would, so they were in a in a sense they were able to repair that there was no threat of the affair being resuscitated. And whether or not she had other affairs, of course, Colin wasn't there to announce them, so we don't know. But he carried this story like a deformed hump. He told his uh, Molly before they married that this is what had happened. He told her the story, and they didn't invite the parents to the wedding. The parents didn't come to their wedding. And they only went back to Broken Hill together sometime later when they had children of their own. And Molly said she was expecting the, you know, the most massive explosion and it was just ignored. There wasn't ever any closeness between his mother and Colin, but, you know, they were able to have a civil relationship. So years later when he was serving in Papua New Guinea, Colin got a letter from his father acknowledging apparently, that Colin had told the truth. You know, he, he was right and sort of trying to repair some of the damage that had been done in that fit of peak when he'd thrashed him and kicked him out of the house. And then some years after that, when Colin's mother died, she bequeathed him a box. And when he opened the box, there was a note from his mother, late mother, who was no longer there. All, a note to whom? To Colin. And all she said was, on this piece of paper, Colin... I always loved Roy. Roy was the lodger. And so it was this, oh. she had the last word and he, I think, was devastated, A, that she'd had the last word, but B, that he had destroyed, you know, her one moment of pleasure. And I wonder whether or not that hardened his desire to leave once he had found this purple passion, whether it toughened his, steeled his decision to go because he could, you know, he could see the chances. He was too young to understand the compromise of marital fatigue when he was 14 years old. All he could see was the disloyalty and the betrayal of his father. But once he'd 
married and, you know, become entranced with this younger woman, Luda, you know, he was ready to move on and ready to go. So you found out then there'd be there'd been intergenerational infidelity over four generations mm. in mm. this family. Four mm. generations. Mm. Again, this brings us back to the whole issue of what predisposes a line a line, a generation after generation towards this, mm. or is this just coincidence? What, have you arrived at some kind of a theory on this case, some thought on, on where this, no, what this I, is? No, I think it's a combination of nature and nurture. I do think that there is something to be said for this neuro research, looking at the uh, the reward circuitry of the brain, and I think it's also this idea that once you, you've, you've been exposed to an affair in your family of origin, it, it does just leave that door ajar. So I think it's a combination of both. And the, one of the things that I found from this deep dive into each generation was that there was similarities, personality traits that were shared between uh, my husband's grandmother, his father, himself, and the fourth generation of infidelity. So that they are immensely sociable, absolutely driven in pursuit of goals, determined to achieve. Nothing gets in their way. They're both profligate and generous. They're very concerned with the cut of their clothes. There were just certain elements of their personality that made me suspect that they were unable to restrain the desire for personal gratification, that that could be an element in what leads people astray. Sometimes I've noticed in people like Bill Clinton, I, I recognise a trait and I've seen this in other men, I think they're very used to pleasing other people. They they grow up, they learn how to be pleasing to other people. Mm. Bill Clinton mm. is certainly like that. That's how that's why he was such a successful politician. Mm. And I think there's something in the back of his mind that tells him, I've been a good boy for everyone and yeah. I deserve a treat. Yeah. <laughs> I deserve a treat. A dirty a dirty and a treat that's gonna be my my own little secret treat of a of a kind. And I will do and he has this preposterous affair with yeah. an intern. So he's been a good boy and a good boy yeah. and a good boy and a good boy, yeah. and now he's gonna be a bad boy yeah. secretly. What yeah. do you think of that? Oh, I think it's possibly true. And again, it's that unrestrained desire for personal gratification. You know, he decides to reward himself because he feels he's been such a good boy. Uh, again, I think because it hadn't tripped him up before, he'd been able to successfully skirt, skate through the uh, his presidential bid, even though these stories about his cheating came out. His wife stood beside him and he... He risked everything, really, didn't he, for the coin of Lewinsky's touch. He risked his marriage, he risked the devotion of his daughter, he risked the presidency. I mean, goodness me. Those three things alone would make most of us sort of rattle in our shoes, quake in our shoes, but he didn't. Again, that suggests to me someone who just couldn't possibly stop. Like I said at the beginning, you decided, you asked Greg, your husband, to come with you to Broken Hill Mm. in 2019. Mm. What were you hoping to find in Broken Hill? Well, just to get to the bones of the story, you know, I was really interested in 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 in, in the the muscle and the sinews and the tissues of what the rogue coupling of an affair means. And I knew that um, you know we, we would both go there together. He's got his family. He's got cousins in Broken Hill, and uh, it's a wild old he town, loves, Broken Hill. He loves Broken yeah, Hill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He loves it. It's, yeah. it because that's where his father came from, and he's got a real attachment to that landscape you know, visceral attachment to that landscape from it's having a, it's visited a, it's there. It's a lively town. I've been a couple of times <laughs> and in Broken Hill you have some pretty interesting conversations. It's a, it's a bit of a, it's like Kalgoorlie. It's one of those big old mining yeah, towns where yeah. certain, um, you know, there's a feeling that what goes on tour stays on tour in a town like that. And it's that. a blokey town. Yeah, it's yeah. a mining town. It's a one-trick mining town, I think, and that that, there are, that probably encourages some of that behaviour. It is a bit of a frontier land. Uh, but, uh, you know, we had to be careful because his cousin's grew up without this story rattling in the dark of night. And so they they don't have a view on, 
on their grandmother's infidelity. Um, but I was able to interview um, the last remaining sibling of Colin. So of those seven children, there's only one alive and she's now 98 and in a nursing home. But she was, she she remembers being there at the time. She had her own personal dramas that she was dealing with, but she remembers Colin going on and on about the lodger and, his affa- and, and the affair. Forgiveness. Mm, forgiveness. So important. Yeah? Yeah. Forgiveness and acceptance, I've just realised. They're such healing things. I mean, acrimony, suspicion, anger, they're such nasty, violent emotions. And if you can get to a place of forgiveness and acceptance... That's really hard, though, isn't it? Well, isn't that super hard? It isn't super hard. I mean, I think time... I know people who just can't get there. Can't just, get there at no. all. It's such a pity. Yeah. Because it's time. I think it's the passage of time. It tempers the emotions and it changes your sh- the perspective. It brings a shift in perspective. And I think that it really is a healing thing. And this is what the book did for me. It was putting one word in front of the other, trying to explain what had happened, trying to understand what had happened from both sides, walking in the shoes of Greg's grandmother, walking in the shoes of Luda, who I interviewed for the book before she tragically died... I was able to understand more about the passion that, you know, ignites affairs. And there's a wonderful um, uh, quote from Midsummer Night's Dream where Shakespeare writes, lovers and madmen share such seething brains, such shaping fantasies, they apprehend more than cool reason can ever comprehend. And I got a real insight into that. It gave me, you know, brought a sense of peace because I could understand how these two people had had completely ignored, you know, the consequences of their behaviour because you don't. You don't when you're in that spiral of passion. True forgiveness takes enormous strength. Can people mistake that for weakness? I think they can, yes. And, and in fact, you know, I, I expect to get a bit of that from people who say, well, he lied to you for 20 years. You know, why would you forgive him? Well, um, why? Because it, it, uh, there's no point in beating someone up endlessly and, you know, it, it, it's that sweet place of acceptance and forgiveness. I can't really explain it any better than that. How do you arrive at that, do you find? Do you arrive at it through as a, as a, as a conscious act of will or out of sheer exhaustion? <laughs> Does, do you sort of run out of, do you run out of rage for a while? Well, I think you do run out of rage. And, you know, in the beginning, of course, because you want to tell everybody and you want to talk about it endlessly and you want to line up the exhibits from A to Z of, you know, what you've gone through. You play the victim card. You want to be, you want to, he's the perpetrator, you're the victim. Do you have I an think... imaginary courtroom in your head <laughs> yes. where this person has been? But eventually you get bored with it. Even you get bored with it. And that's the thing about normalising the telling of a story. I think it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, you know, grief or success can enrich you or destroy you, I think, that you can go either way with those things. And I just was determined not to let grief destroy me. There's some things that have happened in our family recently, which are much more tragic than losing a husband. And, um, you know, I realised that that, uh, even though that was a terrible thing for me to have to deal with, there are, of course, much things that are much worse. It's fascinating and it's great you've written about this because people are really interested in this stuff. It's also, it's intensely private. Mm. Why did you want to write this book? Why did you want to come forward with this story? Well, because I think we share our stories so that other people can understand or perhaps recognise what they've gone through or find a, a handrail or a banister to pull them out of despair. And I've always found that in my journalism, the people who uh, have fascinated me most are the people who come to forgiveness. I interviewed this woman in Hobart. She'd looked after her um, oceanographer husband he, through dementia. She'd nursed him through dementia. 
and she was he was used to work for the Defence Department, so there were boxes and boxes of his stuff in the garage. Garage is a fascinating place, as Richard, so much happens in them, obviously. <laughs> so don't, she said, "Don't ever go into the garage. Into the that's garage. one lesson. Exactly. That's that's one lesson from your exactly. book. Don't ever go into that garage. You won't like what you find <laughs> out in that garage. No, it's, a, it's definitely a place to be avoided." And she sat there all day in this wintry Hobart day, going through the boxes and oh. and shredding a lot of material, and she got to the very last box at dusk on a cold wintry day and it was full of the letters and the correspondence that he'd written with his numerous mistresses and lovers throughout his life. And she had to sit there and read it on her own. She couldn't even, had no one to rail against because he had passed. She sat up all night, she said, in her clothes, she drank a glass of whiskey and then the next morning she wrote a letter to one of the women who had had the most longest and uh, intense relationship with her husband in an attempt to understand a side of this man that she'd never known. And that's how she got to a place of forgiveness. And and telling her story helped me to get to a place of, of acceptance. And she made the approach to me to talk about this because she'd read a story I'd written about first wives who had left their husbands because their husbands had been unfaithful. And when their husbands got terminally ill, they would come, they came back to look after them. It seems like there's two conflicting desires here. One is the deliciousness of a wicked secret. And then there's this profound desire to live in truth. Mm, mm. That sort of sort of meet each other and, and clash and collide mm. here. What do you think about all that, Kate? The, the 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 deliciousness of the secret, and then there's the is that part of the attraction of the affair that it's this secret? Uh, but then there's the necessity to live in truth. Mm. I know, and I uh, I mean I prefer to live in truth, and and that's what also drove me in looking at what had happened to see is. I mean, you can never get to the truth. There's your version, my version, and then there's the truth, of course. But you can get as close as you can to understanding. And uh, I guess that's what I wanted and that's why I wrote the book, to get as close as I could to understanding more about these relationships which are so commonplace, which happen everywhere, happening all the time. There'll be people in this studio and behind us who will be having affairs, but they don't talk about it because of the secrecy. And this was an attempt to flush out, I guess, and to get people talking about it so that maybe, for example, that they could read Dan Savage and recognise the value of honesty and and salvaging the best of the relationship. So it was really a a voyage of discovery but also a voyage of, of trying to bring other people on board and to see if they could um, find some light and not heat. And I wonder if it's a letter to your old self as well because now you're in a relationship with Mm. someone else entirely Mm. and I wonder if that person you are now, well, no, the person you were then back in 2007 Mm. would be astonished by the person you are now and the way you live now. Yeah, possibly, possibly. I was a middle child in a, in a fraught family and so I was always the peacemaker. That was my role. I was the one who probably who, who exploded last. <laughs> Everyone else went off like a rash of dominoes. And um, this new relationship I've got has been interesting for me because he well, has never married, he's got no children, but he's got lots of old girlfriends who come around all the time to visit. And once upon a time I probably would have been really jealous and um, I've just given all that away and I think that's partly growing old too. You know, if you love someone, you let them go. Because if the love's really strong love, you know, they'll stay. They'll stay. But they won't just because you leashed them to the door or you're following them or you've got a you know, detective on their shoes. You, you know, you really, it has to be the love that keeps people together and the honesty. And uh, anyway, look, nothing's perfect and this isn't perfect either and that's been one of the funny things about this relationship as well. But he's made me laugh, which is another wonderful thing because if you can laugh, you're no longer persecuted.
I don't know, there's the old KGB trick, dust their shoes with radium powder <laughs> so you can figure out where they've gone with a Geiger counter. <laughs> oh, look, I was, you know, despite being a good journalist, I was never a very good sleuth when it came to that. I mean, I, I had to be tipped mm. off by, by somebody else. Kate, that's a completely fascinating story. Thank you so much. It's been really great speaking with you. Thank you once again. Thank you, Richard. It's been lovely. Kate Legg's book is called Infidelity and Other Affairs. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.